Thank you for listening to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast from Asheville, North Carolina. For more information on Trinity Baptist Church, please visit tbcashville.org. Or to learn more about our senior pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton, please visit ralphsextonministries.com. The speaker for today is our senior pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton. Take your Bible. Turn with me to Acts 17. Let's jump into this chapter we've been working on. Can you believe this is the fifth service we've had in Acts 17? Remember Acts 16. I talked to a pastor down in Georgia a couple hours ago, and he said, I need to ask you a question. I'm preaching on Acts 16 tonight. He said, I got Paul and Silas in jail. And I said, well, you called it a good time. We just... Went through 16, and we're in 17. Remember chapter 16 is Paul and Silas there at Philippi, and they meet the three converts, the first converts in Europe. If you made these three names in your notes, Lydia, she was the very, probably the wealthiest lady in the New Testament, and Lydia got saved, Acts 16. Then the damsel got saved. She's probably one of the poorest people in the New Testament. She was actually being used and abused by greedy men. She represents those that have no hope and no tomorrow. And God rescued her. And the third one was the jailer. He represents the government employee, the middle class, the people that have a house and have a family, and they go to work. And what God did is he saved one out of every social uh, class of people, money-wise, so that we would see that salvation is for whosoever will may come. God's no respecter of person. Chapter 17, we got into the founding of the church at Thessalonica. Then the church was opposed. Uh, They went after Paul and Silas. And so they quickly moved them to Berea. And that's the first part of 17. And then what happened, the opposition followed Paul and Silas to Berea. Then uh, Timothy is staying with Silas, and they load Paul up, and uh, they realize that he is a lightning rod. You've got to remember about the equipment and preparation in the life of Paul. He was probably, probably had a genius IQ. When you study what he accomplished, what he did, he probably, and he probably had a photographic memory. It's amazing what that one man produced. But we know that it was the hand of God. We know he came from an extremely wealthy family, so he was rich. We know that he was well-educated. He studied with the greatest scholars of his day. And he was a member of the Pharisees. He could open the key to any synagogue. He had the clout. He had the power. He was a member of the Council of Jerusalem. So all these things you do researching in the life of Paul. So what happens is he's such a lightning rod that the people that were helping him uh, there in Berea said, we don't want him hurt. And we know that they know that he was a former Pharisee. So that's igniting the Jews. So what did they do? They loaded him up. They sent him out and on the way to Athens. And Timothy and Silas stay there. 
Now, when he gets to Athens, the Apostle Paul I'm talking about, he sends back and he said, I need you guys to come to me as quickly as you can. He saw the greatest mission field he had ever been in. He could not believe the splendor, the greatness of the big city of Athens and all that was around it. And so it was a great mission field. And why was it, did it touch the heart of the Apostle Paul? There's three or four reasons. Number one, it was the center of science. Number two, it was the center of medicine. Number three, it was the center of education. And number four, that's what Mars Hill's all about, it was the center of philosophy, of debate. And so when Paul got there and he saw the splendor, he saw the beautiful buildings, he saw the statuary, he saw the paintings, Every famous sculpture in the world wanted to be in Athens. Every famous painter wanted to be in Athens. It was the to-go place. It was the cutting edge. So when he got there, he saw this, but he saw that they had no relationship with Jehovah God. So he sent word back to the men, and that's Silas and Timothy, you guys come to me. Verse 22 of chapter 17, we'll begin reading for tonight's study. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Verse 25, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Verse 26, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far away from every one of us. Key verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. I'm going to pause right there for just a moment before I finish reading the chapter. Here, here's what we've got to go back to. Verse 22, he said, I perceive in all things you are too superstitious. What that word uh, if I were reading it in classical Greek, it would talk about that the proof of their devotion to religion is that they worshipped. They were not irreverent people. They were seeking after God. And to make sure that they didn't miss anybody, they built a monument to the unknown God. We don't know your name. We don't know what you do. So they built this memorial to an unknown God. So what Paul went after was their desire, their desire that they had to 
acknowledge that there was a God. A little G-O-D in their world, capital G-O-D in Paul's world, okay? So now here comes Paul's speech. And his speech is marked, his message is marked by three things that's important. It's calm, it's dignified, and it's argumentative. In other words, he's willing to debate. It's not like the debate last night on television. It's a little different. He's calm. Okay? And he's articulate in his delivery. He's saying that this is what you need to hear. Now, why did he do that? Well, number one, he knew his audience. Number two, he knew where he was. The greatest debate platform on planet Earth was called Mars Hill. Okay? So he knew all those factors are presented here. So he comes into that and he backs a little bit out of the preacher role, just a tiny bit. He backs out of that and he steps over into the Pharisee, highly educated, sophisticated Apostle Paul that on any platform he could present the cause of Christ on an intellectual level. It's like when we get to hear the testimony of a scientist or a researcher that's been born again or a medical doctor give their view of the cross and the crucifixion. Man, those are goosebump events when they take all their skills and all their understanding of the human body and the blood and, and they put it all together and say, let me tell you what really happened on the cross that day. Because they know the physiology. They know the medical side. Well, what Paul did, he stepped right over here and he said, by the way, you know, uh, he didn't brag about who he was or what he was, but he just stepped over into that and he took the, how do I say this? Everything you've experienced in your life up to tonight, God had a plan and a purpose, whether it's even good or bad. What you thought was a disaster, what you thought would never be used, God will turn it around and let it be your greatest witnessing tool. Your greatest heartache, your greatest disappointment. What you went through, you thought was going to tear your heart out of your chest. God will take it and let you touch the heart of other people because you'll be so tender to know how it feels. You'll know the terror, the, the feeling, the emotion. And what Paul was allowed to do by the grace of God, he stepped over into that and he said, by the way, let me just tell you about this God. He's God of creation. And he just takes them right over to Genesis and starts talking about the power of who he is and of what he is, okay? Now, uh, he said, I perceive that you are greatly devoted to reverence religion. Now, I'm going to read it to you. Listen to this phrase, verse 23. Uh, As I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown gods, okay? Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, if I were to read that verse in the classical Greek, and here's the reason I'm saying that, the Greek language that Paul's using, they have maybe four or five words that just means L-O-V-E. We have one word, love. But they had shades of meaning and depths of meaning. So here's how it might sound. 
I perceive that you are greatly devoted to reverence to religion. And it is a characteristic of the people to honor the little G-O-D, to honor the gods, to rear altars to them, and to recognize the divine agency in times of trial. That's what he did. He stepped over into this and he said, I understand. I understand what you're thinking. I understand what you're going. Now, what was his biblical proof of his uh, summary and summation of the situation? Because he's standing beside a monument, uh, an idol that says to the unknown God. So he said, I know what you're thinking because I, I can read it. You carved it in stone. And so, what, what's Paul trying to contrast? If they were heathens and had no concept of God, they just wanted to be completely, what would the right word be? Hedonistic. They, they just wanted to be completely without any restraint on their life and anything they do, just do the passions of, of the flesh. Like many ways like the Epicureans we talked about last week. If they were like that, without any restraint at all, he said, you're not like that. You're so afraid of grieving one of these little G-O-D-S that you said, let's put up a monument to the unknown one. He's saying inside, you want to know the truth. They're here every Sunday. There are people here every week. They want to know. Their life's a disaster. And they're worshiping the unknown God of pleasure, the unknown God of money, the unknown God of sensuality. And they're thinking, if I can just get one more high, this will be the high that will fill up my soul. If I can just make another $10,000, this will be what will satisfy the craving of my soul. If I can just have one more relationship, this will fill me up on the inside. And they're worshiping the unknown God. But they want to do right, but they're struggling within their own flesh. And God Almighty says, you know this book, you know the truth. And he gave an anointing to Paul to quicken his intellect, to perceive what they were wrestling in. And he stepped right into the middle of that and said, I know the one you're looking for. I know his name. I'm going to tell you about him. And that's, that's what we've got to be able to do with this burden, even that we're going to make a fresh and a new for Easter to, to reach people that need our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the proof of that was this unknown altar. And, and you know what happens here? These, these uh, people of Athens, these philosophers, they're telling Paul, we're smart. But we're also, because of our intellect, we know that we don't know everything. Did you know that's a, that's a part of wisdom? When you get smart enough to realize that you don't know everything. I, I, take my father, for example. I was shocked. I mean, I was. I was genuinely amazed how much my dad learned after I graduated from high school and by the time I'd been married a couple of years, I just couldn't believe. Pop's picking it up pretty quick. He's fast. It might not have been Pop. 
It might have been, but I thought I knew it all. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so part of the wisdom of, of these philosophers were, was the fact that they said, you know, we're smart, but there's some things we don't know. And here's what they did pick up on. We understand something, some force is bigger than us. And we have labeled it unknown. Isn't that an interesting concept? They labeled what they didn't know unknown. And so they said it's to the unknown God. Verse 23, it says, as I was, Paul's talking now, and in conversational Greek, we would say, as I was coming through and seeing and beheld, uh, I saw the devotion. Well, that devotion would, would be this, the act of worshiping. What were they doing in front of the unknown God? What were they doing in all these other gods? And Paul says, I found this altar. I found this monument of stone. It's to the unknown God. Now, I like to sometimes take off and go over to secular history and, and to look. One of the greatest battles that we have in today's generation is the authority of God's Word. People don't want to, well, that's your Bible. I've had people look at me and say, well, that's your Bible. And I say, no, no, it's not my Bible, it's God's Bible. But that's the greatest, one of the greatest battles because they don't want to believe the Word of God. And so if it's God's Word, then that changes a lot of things. Then if it is God's Word, then the inerrancy of it, that it meaning that it contains no errors, no conflicts, and, and then the authority of it. And then what's the third part or fourth part of Scripture? Inspiration. That it wasn't man dictated, but it was given by a holy God. So having said that, here is a passage of Scripture that you can be a student of when Paul's making this message and presentation about the unknown God that he's going to prove to you that your Bible is inerrant and infallible. You say, how's that possible? He's going to use a phrase, unknown God. This is the Bible. So how do I know this is the Word of God? Well, this was written 2,000 years ago, and one preacher in the Bible used a phrase and said, at Mars Hill, there's an inscription on a rock that says, unknown God. Well, did anybody else of that time period ever mention unknown God and a monument and a stone? Would that not be a fair comparison that if we went and looked for it? And what if we found it in secular history, people that are not preachers? And we find them saying, on Mars Hill, there's an unknown God in Scripture. Let me give you two or three. Mentius Felix wrote in his passage, in Athens they built altars to unknown divinities, unknown to the citizen of Athens. He said when he visited there and when he wrote, he said these citizens have a God, they don't know who he is, 
but they, they write to him as the unknown, the unknown divinity. Lucian, in his book, uh, Philopatris, he wrote this, that in Athens they use an oath, or the form of an oath, and here he said, I'm going to give you that oath. I swear by the unknown gods of Athens. Isn't that fascinating? All they're saying is, your Bible's true. These are secular writers. These are historians. Philostratus wrote, and this at Athens where there are even altars to unknown gods. Pausanias in his writing put, in Athens there are altars of gods, little g-o-d-s, which, listen to this phrase, which are called the unknown ones. They're called the unknown ones. Those are all historians, philosophers, and writers. And all of them said, guess what? Your Bible's true. It, your Bible's telling the truth. There really was a monument there on Mars Hill in Greece. And it did say to the unknown gods. And each of them at different time periods when they came through there, uh, even one of those was probably 600 years before the birth of Christ. And it was already there. Isn't that amazing? I'm fascinated with how God authenticates His Word and even the world has to confess. Well, it's true. Paul's got it in the Bible. And there it is. And they say, well, uh, nobody... Oh, yeah, a lot of people saw it. Now, we have a Christian writer. A lot of you remember him, Jerome. And Jerome and his commentaries. And in his commentary, Jerome had this paragraph. He said that in Athens... He said, the actual inscription up on that monument was to the gods of Asia, Europe, and Africa, to the unknown and strange gods. Jerome was there later, and he said it was part of an actual inscription, uh, a paragraphical setting on the side of that rock. And he said, this is what it said. To the gods of Asia, to the gods of Europe, to the gods of Africa, to the unknown and strange gods. So this culture was actually consumed by this re religion and worship of gods. And to make sure that they didn't miss one, they had this. Diogenes said in his writings, to the gods to whom these things pertain. Diogenes, there was a plague on the city of Athens and everybody was dying with the plague. And so he took up and said, we've got to pray to our gods. And they said, well, Diogenes, which god do we pray to? How do we know who's got the most power? And so he took a flock of black sheep and white sheep and goats and he took them up on top of Mars Hill. And he said, I'm going to turn them loose. And you follow them and whichever God they go to, then you grab them and sacrifice them there. That was his prayer. That whatever a goat walked to or a sheep walked to, different, white and black, good and evil was his uh, Diogenes thinking. He said, then we'll sacrifice to that God. You see, they did want to know. 
And sometimes people you work with, they'll be hostile. They'll almost be use an oath at you, swear, curse. I don't want God. I don't have time for Him. He's never done anything for me. But inside, that's not the truth. I can share with you in this town that when I was working in the public sector and I was working in one of the dealerships uh, in this time right before, I, I bought Asheville Vending Company and I had a man that was so hostile. And the reason I was going to pull out and go into my own company was I felt like God was dealing with me and I didn't know what, but I was, I was going to make it so that I would be my own boss. That was the whole idea, that I could go do what I needed to do. And this man was so angry and he was so... Uh, he, he, there's not a nice way to say it, but he, he wanted to insult you, he wanted to hurt you with words any way you would because I was trying to live right and I was trying to serve the Lord and, and he just would drop the hammer on you. And, and if you walked up, he wanted to make sure he switched over and told the dirtiest joke he could tell. And he wanted to use bad language and he wanted to make fun if anybody had religion. And one day I'm standing there uh, at the, back then the Coke machine, you had a big old rack and you got a glass bottle of Coke out and then when you finish your Coke, you put it back in that rack. And I walked up there and uh, I saw the three or four of the guys were there. And he started using bad language. And he said, oh, here comes that so-and-so goody two-shoe, you know, and he was just going on. And I just got a Coke and turned around. Hey, guys, how y'all doing? And I just walked away. Four days later, five days later, I can't remember exactly, that same man walked out of the shop, out of the back, and he saw me at the edge of the lot. He said, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. I said, I didn't know what to expect. And, and I looked up at his face. I saw his chin was quivering. He said, I, I need a favor. I said, well, sure. I was surprised he's talking to me, let alone he wanted a favor. And he said, I need a favor. He said, my mama got real sick during the night. We took her to Mission Hospital. Doctor said, she may die today. Said, would you pray for my mama? He started weeping. All that big stuff, all that big talking, it was nothing but a wall. That's all that was. And what Paul's saying, these people have put up a wall of religion. They really want to know and he said, but they've got this up and we've got to get through and let them know that there's a real living God. And that's what we're all about. That's our faith. That's what we do. And so it says in verse 24, he goes on to talk about the God that made the world, proving the foolishness of idolatry, thus lead them to repentance. Then he talks about the creator of the world, the one that rules heaven and earth, and it's, he's saying, it's foolish for you to think this great God, we're going to stick him in an idol you make or in a temple you carve. You can't put him in that. He's God. Verse 25, it talks about to serve. He said, it's not going to be served with man's hand. He said, your ritual and what you think up with your own hands, uh, he said, that's not going to work. That's not going to reach God. God's after your heart. Guys, remember, Paul's now, we're after sacrifice. We're out of the temple time. We're, this is a church age. It's the beginning. So he's saying, we don't need all those rituals. Verse 26, 
He talks about one blood. And that blood word means, uh, in this, it means race or stock. Uh, it has to do with kindred. And isn't this amazing? You know, we didn't know about uh, transferring blood from one body to another. And we, that had to come later in science to be discovered that uh, a man from China can give blood to a man uh, from Africa and a man from Africa can give blood to a man that may be an Eskimo and we didn't know that. But Paul said 2,000 years ago through the anointing of the Holy Ghost, we're one blood. If God made us, we got the same blood. Isn't that amazing? How, that's how far ahead your Bible was of the science of today. And then it says uh, later on in this passage, did you notice it talked about, it said, because he hath appointed a day, verse 31, when he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's going all the way through there. And it, he's talking about this, this element in verse 26. He's letting it uh, one blood to dwell on the earth. He's uh, determined the hap the bounds of their habitation. And then he's presenting them in verse 27, that key verse I gave you in 28, for we, uh, in him we live, we move and have our being. And by the time we get over to verse 31, he said, and by the way, in a very kind way, by the way, there's going to be a judgment day. You'll give an account. You, why? Because now light's been received. See what a difference it makes? When you witness, you share your faith. Now the light's there. Now it's up to you. I can't make anyone serve the Lord. I can't make anyone be a Christian. But I can kindly show them the light of the Word of God. And that's what he did. Uh, Larry, an interesting thing about that uh, verse I just read where he talked about the boundary, uh, that is the, in that same passage, it has to do in the connotation of a field. But it goes back to Genesis 11 when God scattered the races and the languages and he determined their boundaries where they'd live. Isn't that interesting? Because we had different color people living in different areas of the world. And that, that's what he's talking about. It goes all the way back to chapter 11 in the book of Genesis. I know some of you like to follow those things. Verse 32, some mocked and some said, we will hear you again. Verse 33, Paul left. But I love verse 34. It said, certain men clave unto him and what? And believed. Certain men clave unto him and believed. You know what that word clave means? It means they adhered unto him. There's not a church in the world that loves God that you can have a church without a pastor loving his people and the people loving the pastor. I dealt with a pastor earlier in the week going through a very difficult time. And he broke down and he wept for a minute. And then he, I said, well, what's the main problem? And he said, I'm scared. He said, I'm scared. He said, because I just realized with my training and my school, I don't know how to be a pastor. It's his first church. And he said, I'm scared. And what I, you know what I told him? Welcome to the club. 
because I said, I still go in every Sunday morning and I look at them and they scare the daylights out of me. I said, who knows how to be a pastor? But I said, here's what you're going to discover. If that church loves God and they love you and they called you, I said, they're the ones that will make you a pastor. They're the ones that will train you. They'll let you make your mistakes. That church right over there next door in that building, they let me, listen, I'd get my theology mixed up. I'd get the wrong people, say the words backwards, and I still have trouble with words because of the ADD. And I see it, and it'll come out another way. And you know what they did? They said, oh, I know his heart. He'll be fine. And they just loved you right through it. And I had Noah... He didn't even have an ark. I had him up somebody's tree, and I had Zacchaeus on the ark. And, 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 and you just preach and go right on through there. But what makes a pastor, what makes a preacher are people. It's the people interacting, helping, loving, praying, working together. That's what knits us together. And that verse, that's why I love it, verse 34, says they adhered unto him. They got him. They just stuck to him. And, and, and another meaning of that word in the Greek adhered is embraced. Embraced. So now we've been through chapter 17 and we've seen Paul. And some mocked him. Some made fun of him. Not everybody received. And if you share your faith, not everybody's going to receive. But some will. And so... Now we'll leave Athens, and the next time we get together, Lord willing, we'll go to the city of Corinth. Wouldn't it be fun if we could uh, uh, had us a big old private plane and we'd just fly to each one of these places to do our Bible study? That'd be good, wouldn't it? Father, bless your word. Bless the reading of your word. And God, may we love what you're doing through the power of this word to grow us in knowledge and grow us in grace. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. I pray that today God spoke to your heart. You know, it's one thing to hear Ralph talk. It's one thing to hear a choir sing. It's one thing to hear a group bring a special song presentation. But it's altogether different when you're sitting there in that hotel room, in your house, maybe listening on your phone, while you're at work, and God speaks to your heart. That's not me. That's not a Baptist, a Methodist, or a Presbyterian church. That's God. That's personal. That's you. And the Bible teaches quite clearly that when God touches your heart, when He speaks to you, that you can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Bible teaches that all of us have to have Him. You say, well, Brother Ralph, your dad was a preacher. My dad being a preacher couldn't help me. Well, you say your mama taught Sunday school and she prayed. That couldn't help me. The Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, not me, not the Baptist, the Bible says that there's none righteous, though not one. Today is the day of salvation. You can begin anew. It can start over. The past can be covered by the blood. You can get out of living in your rearview mirror, the guilt, the problems. God can forgive you and you can start over today. You say, Brother Ralph, how is that possible? Well, a simple prayer is that very beginning. God, be merciful unto me a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. 
please forgive me. And I promise you, God, from this day forward, I'll serve you with the rest of my life. You can begin again in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you call us, you write to us. We'll send you a copy of the Word of God. And I want to encourage you to get into a local church, a church in your community, that you can have a fellowship of faith that will help you grow and teach you about the Word of God. Today's the day of salvation. This is the first day of the rest of your life. Let's serve the Lord together and let's meet each other in heaven. I'll be praying for you and I ask you to pray for me.